0: Good morning, everybody. Um, <laughs> it was a uh, it was a while ago now, but but back in I think it was 2014, um, the University of Virginia's psychology department did a study, um, and it was interesting enough. The, the results were to make their way sort of briefly into our, our, our national news cycle, um, because the experiment was they 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 took people. They, uh, just an individual person one at a time and they put them in a room and they said just sit here by yourself and do nothing for 15 minutes um, and people hated it they just hated it. They had to stay in the chair. They had to stay awake. They couldn't have a phone. They couldn't listen to music. They couldn't do anything. Just stay in your chair, by yourself, alone with your thoughts for 15 minutes. And everybody who they asked about it afterwards was like, that was terrible. Um, they had actually some people do it off-site in their homes, and those people cheated. They played with their phones. Um, and the most interesting thing, the part that, that I think was what pushed it over the top of interesting and made it into the national news is they also gave them a little button, and they could push it. And it would shock them and it would be unpleasant they they and the they, the experiment the people being experiment were told this hey you've got a button if you push it it'll shock you and it'll hurt and during those 15 minutes most people uh more men than women pushed the button at least <laughs> once <laughs> at some point they decided you know what would be better than just sitting here um, and so th- th- this you know became the the news headline you know study finds people would rather be electrically shocked then be by themselves for 15 minutes um now i kind of take issue with the science of that just because i think if you gave most of the dudes in this room a buzzer to shock themselves with they would push that button at least once um, that's that's just my my knowledge of, uh, i mean i had i i played with a cattle prod once in in coastal farm and ranch and anyway <laughs> those things are on in the store um, they are yeah um Anywho. And and so I, I got to thinking when I when, when that, that, that story came to mind just what would what would that be like We 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 hate being by ourselves, we detest the idea of of nothing to fill the silence, no no purpose, no meaning, uh, all all alone, all on our own, and, and you have to wonder, if 15 minutes of that was so intolerable that people would shock themselves just for a change of pace, what, what would a lifetime like that be like? What would an eternity like that be like? We are, we are continuing our, our still new car-smelling uh, Exodus series today. We'll, we'll be in chapter 2, and we'll be doing verses 1 through 10. That's up uh, near the front of most Bibles. Unless you've got a really weird one. Um, and, and we're picking up where we left off last week. The descendants of Israel are now numerous. They're enslaved and oppressed in Egypt, and they're standing under an edict of compulsory genocide um, by order of Pharaoh, king of Egypt kill your sons by drowning them in the river Nile. And so we're, we're left wondering well, what's going to happen? Will Pharaoh succeed? Will God respond? And so that's where we open today, Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Last week, we kind of ended on a cliffhanger. Uh, Pharaoh was trying these different strategies to, to weaken, to manage the population of Israel, and and he kept failing, and the scene ended with that terrible decree, and we were left to wonder, would he succeed this time? Would he fail again? What was God going to do about it? And, and I kind of gave you the teaser last week. I said, this week, we would see how God responded. We would see God's answer to that. And there's a decent chance you're feeling terribly, terribly cheated or lied to, um, because you might have just listened to those last 10 verses and said, what? What, what did God do exactly? Because he's completely from, absent from the narrative. You did not hear me say, and God did this or God did that anywhere in those 10 verses. As we read this section, we, we, we might, in fact, find ourselves in the very position of the people of Israel at that moment and, and find ourselves asking, where is God while this is happening? People are dying. there are in chains. Where is God? Right when we need him, when we read these ten verses, we do not see him anywhere. Or do we? And, and here's the thing. I think the inspired author of Exodus is actually pretty good at writing. I think we don't see God's name and, and actions directly attributed to him splattered all over these ten verses because this situation, this kind of situation, is the very sort of situation where we would be very likely to miss the fact that God is, in fact, working. That this is the kind of situation in which we wouldn't notice that God was there, that we would be feeling at our most abandoned, at our most alone. We don't see God in this passage because there's a good chance we wouldn't see God when it was happening, and we would be mistaken. Um, today, I, wa- I want to argue, I want to propose that in this very passage, we have a subtle but profound homage, um, a a nod that pays honor to the tireless, providential, behind-the-scenes work of God for salvation in the life of his people. I I propose that what we see here is that when we think God is absent, when we think he's forgotten us, when we feel spiritually shortchanged by our maker, we're most likely, we're, we're looking at the wrong thing or in the wrong way. or or at the wrong person. I think what we see here is that that God is at work often unseen in normal and everyday things. Um, I think what we see here is that God is at work responding to evil and in the midst of evil and I think that we see that God is always working for the good of his people that he's claimed for himself. Now, I realize this is a bit of an uphill argument and it should be Um, I'm I'm taking a passage that features no direct reference to God, and I'm telling you, this is all about God working. Um, And it should be a tough sell. Because when when tragedy does strike our lives, when tragedy strikes the lives of of people who don't believe, and, and, and we come to them and we commend our hope in Jesus as the answer to that, it's going to be a tough sell to say that God is at work in the world, that God is working for the good in people's lives when terrible things are happening that we're not alone, because if God is there and he is working for the good of his people, then where was he in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10? Where was he when this tragedy struck or that atrocity took place? Well, let's, let's, let's start going through it. First, God is at work in the normal and everyday. And, and I think this point needs to be made because if we require the text to say... God did this. God did that. See that thing there? That was God. God said God did. It was him. If we need a big highlighted pointing textual finger to to see that God was involved in in something in the Bible, there's a very good chance that we're going to start requiring that in our lives. We're going to need the voice of an omniscient narrator coming to us and saying, hey, that was God. This is God. I am God. Do this. And and miss on the act out entirely on the activity of God in our lives because I don't know what your guys' lives are like, but but mine and and most people without ongoing persistent auditory hallucinations, they they don't have a a narrator running in their lives. They don't have an omniscient narrator giving context to everything that was happening, saying, oh, that was God, shoulda, coulda, woulda gone different, but hey, boom, God did this we run this, this risk of living lives oblivious to what God is doing, to God's providential hand in our lives, as if every breath we were breathing wasn't a miracle in and of itself. But, but where is this in the text? Um, I think in, in this section we, we see a series of normal events, innocuous, commonplace things, but piling up coincidence upon coincidence, unlikely circumstance on unlikely circumstance that, that should lead us to be in questioning, is there something more happening here than just business as usual? Because, I mean, I mean, look how we open, verse one. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, Levi woman. A Levite man meets a Levite woman. Hey girl, you're a Levite woman, I'm a Levite man. How about we get our parents to hash out the details and get to making some Levi babies. Um, and she's like, I bet you say that to all the Levite girls. And he's like, no, girl, that ain't me. <laughs> no. Come back to my mud brick slave hut, and I'll show you my genealogies. I'll show you my Levitical pedigree. Um, and, you know, I mean, th- this is Friday night stuff. There's, there's nothing abnormal here. This is, this is business as usual. This is the normal in every day. But so the two people meet. They, they fall in love, they, they have children, several of them, in fact. But at one point, one of these children, a son, is born during the timeline of Pharaoh's edict. Now, verse 2 is interesting. When, when the mother sees the child, she sees that he was a fine child, and so she hid him. She's a, she's a fine child, and so she hid him. And that's interesting, because when I read that, my first thought is like, okay, so... He's a good-looking kid, so we'll keep him. Like, if it had gone the other way, it's like, oh, you ugly, you're going to go in the river. Um, you know, you're know, you so hideous, maybe the crocodiles adopt you, it'll be fine. I mean, is that what the Bible is saying? And I, and I don't think it is. Because um, I mean, that verse jumped out to me as weird, so I looked into it. Um, and other translations don't really help. Some say beautiful. King James gives us goodly, which actually is probably the most helpful one. Because that word in the Hebrew uh, is tobe. And you probably don't know it, but you've seen that word before in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1.1. Maybe no, not one one, but in one. Um, this is creation language. This is the word that gets translated as good in the beginning. When, when God says, let there be light and there is light, he declares the light good. When God breathes life into Adam and humanity comes into being, God declares him good. This is what Moses' mother says when she sees this child. She looks at him and she sees it. She sees the image of God uh, and the handiwork of God and echoes the creator when she sees his creation and says, this is good. So we have a coincidence, uh, one more normal thing piling up, parents who remembered who God was, who, who feared God, even in this time of Pharaoh's edict. And so they hide the child. And this is interesting because we get another throwback to Genesis here. Um, I, I mentioned last week that to know this, to understand this story, we have to we have to remember the story that came before, so Genesis will probably come back to us multiple times throughout this series. Um, they put the baby in a basket, and that word is another lone word from Genesis. It's the word for Noah's ark. It's a basket. It's a, it's a tiny, tiny ark. And the author of Hebrews, actually, is very helpful. In Hebrews 11, he gives us a, um, an insight into... Moses' parents' motivation because we could just say, oh, maybe they were, um, you know, trying to obey the, the letter of the law. Maybe they were afraid. Maybe they were hiding the baby. What was going on? And the author of Hebrew tells us that uh, Moses' parents acted in faith. They, they didn't fear the king's edict. They put their son, who they saw as good, in the, the, this, this tiny minuscule ark um, and, and put him in the river trusting in God. And a woman comes by who sees something among the reeds. A woman who was moved to compassion for this baby. And again, we're still within the bounds of the possible. There's nothing miraculous here. I think most women would be moved to compassion when they see a, a poor lost baby. Um, that's normal. But this woman is Pharaoh's daughter. It's her father's edict that has brought this terrible a um, series of events to pass, uh, a woman whose security and wealth comes at least in part from the enslavement and oppression of this Hebrew pe- people. There's no reason for there to be any great love lost between this, this wealthy pagan woman and this seemingly abandoned Hebrew child. And there's also probably no one else who could have saved this baby and gotten away with it. Another coincidence. And his big sister's there and she's all Johnny on the spot and, and uh, says, hey, I know a Hebrew lady who would totally nurse that baby for you. Um, and, and, and the ark passes through the waters and the baby comes home. And they get to raise their son. And and as I thought about that story I, and, and just my own life experience, I wondered, well, do, do I think that Moses' parents prayed when when they... When they placed their son in that basket and set him down in the river, I bet you, they did. Um, and, and, and we know they trusted God. Do you think when their, when their daughter came back to them and said, come with me to the river, meet Pharaoh's daughter, uh, the, the baby is going to come back to us. And and not only that, not only is he safe from Pharaoh, he's protected by Pharaoh as part of his family. Not only is he coming home to us, but we are going to be paid to keep him. Do you think they saw that as the work of God in their life? I don't think this, I wouldn't call this a direct answer to prayer for the very simple reason that I don't think they would have prayed that audaciously. They they probably would have prayed for God to spare their son, but I don't think they would have been like, God, please make him Egyptian royalty and please give us money. Um, (laughs) But this is what happens. I don't think they needed a narrator to tell them that God was working. Do we? How, How near is God to us in our lives? Now, this one's hard for me because I'm personally skeptical when I hear, you know, people, mostly rambling ones, talk about how God found their car keys, how God took their stapler, how they saw Jesus in their pancakes. Um, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, bless your heart. Um, but, but in the position where I could happily occupy and just be like, okay, there's a church for you, but it's not this one. Um, God can, you, you can slip into a functional atheism where you believe in God, but he's never done anything that you could actually point to that He, he doesn't matter in your life. Is, is our God so big and so glorious and so of such heavenly worth that he's never of any earthly value? Is, is God both big enough to save us from death and hell and small enough to to care? to notice, to observe the minute details of our lives. Is God working in our lives in the normal and everyday? Um, Michael knows all the rules about what you're supposed to do if you want to be a successful church. Um, You might not know it from these hideous orange chairs. (laughs) (laughs) We thank the city of Moxie for their contribution. Um, and, and Michael knows that if we wanted to be bigger and fancier and cooler and follow all the rules that cool church people follow, we would actually delete the testimony time. That's, that's a non-starter in, in your focus groups for what makes a cool church because people don't like to chair. People don't like to contribute. People don't like the awkward silence. People don't like to, to, to do that. Um, it's difficult, it's our experience, but it's something that we see in the New Testament church and I think Michael wants to be faithful to that Um, and and I support that and I also see that it forces us to think about what God is doing in our lives. Um, I I think we in, in this church have, I mean, very dangerous to pat oneself in the back, um, but I, I think we 're in a truly advantageous position because we do take the time every Sunday to to stop and rack our brains, and you know maybe the awkward silence is bad enough to where we 'll actually say something and, and we'll rack our brains to find something to say about what is God doing in our lives at the very least, I pray that we 're thinking about it. I pray we 're connecting the dots about how God is working just amidst the normal and everyday things, often unseen, often unheralded but to the people who claim to be called by God and share in his spirit, I hope not entirely unnoticed. God is working in the normal and everyday, and he's also working in response to and in the midst of evil. Now this, this point should be obvious, because it's a logical necessity of point one. If God is working in our world, and the world is evil, and most of the time we're complaining to God or about God because it's so evil. If God is in that world which is evil and he's working well, I mean, it it follows it's not a massive leap of logic to see that God is working in the midst of and as a response to evil. If God's going to deal with us, then he's going to be dealing with sinful people mired in the midst of sinful situations. So, I mean, this is an easy point to make, to prove, to establish. Uh, Much easier than the first one. It makes sense, but I think it's the implications of this one that get difficult. It's the follow-through of of making that statement that starts to trip us up. How so? Well, first, perhaps easiest, it's the daughter of Pharaoh that saves this baby, this Moses, woman who's not a follower of God, whose, whose wealth was purchased with Israel's blood. Why would God use her? If God is supposed to be good, why is he embroiling himself in this genocide and doing anything other than stopping it. And this one's a huge stumbling block for our culture. Maybe you've heard this. Um, I hope you have, because it means you're talking to people. but, But you know, you Christians tell us God is good. You tell us that God is powerful. Well, then why is all this evil still around then? And in part the answer is because, well, they're still around. Because the, because the human heart in its current state is a factory of evils. Because the ground is, is cursed on account of our sin. And, and if we in our high moral standards judge God as a hypocrite for working in the midst of evil and not doing something drastic and immediate about it, we're failing to recognize that the, the divine restraint observed in not so doing is the only thing uh, keeping us wholehearted and intact. God doing something about evil means doing something about us. Uh, I believe it was R.C. Sproul. And I might be pulling the wrong name because, um, because notes are for wimps. Um, but, but maybe it was Chesterton. Anyway, there was a dude. <laughs> and he was a Christian dude. And, 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 a, and a newspaper just sent out... Um, a question to to various intellectuals and academics and it was, you know, what's wrong with the world? And people wrote back, you know, so that the letters would be published in this big article and, you know, people had their thoughts, some were pity, some were essays. Um, and, And this guy's was, his response was very short. It was, Dear Sirs, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. God, God working in the midst of evil situations in our world shouldn't be a philosophical impossibility to us. It should be a theological marvel rather than just melting the universe back down into slag um, to, to, to reuse its constituent parts or just abandoning the concept of creation entirely rather than saying, well, people have made their big evil bed and now must sleep evilly in it. God reaches into the world in response to the evil He sees. And it's maybe not in the most obvious manner. It's not in the most cinematic manner. The, the, the way we prefer, the way we might expect, it's not always the most direct route. But here in this very story, we see God working through a woman that no one would expect. This is an unlikely savior. Um, I was actually speaking with David and, and he, about this passage, and he pointed out to me, how awkward this story would be once the book of Exodus gets written down because, uh, spoiler alert, the people of Israel get out of Egypt and Egypt's not their favorite people at that point point. Um, and their hero Moses, his mom was Egyptian um, that, that's awkward, so the, the, you wouldn't include this detail but for the terrible fact that it's true. So we have God saving this people, or at the very least doing something working in the world through a woman no one would expect via means no one understands. You've saved a baby. We're dying here, God. We're slaves. And, and God's like, okay, I'll save this one here, baby. And we're like, how does that help anything, God. Um, we're, we're still slaves. We're still dying here. What, what, what's that? We can, we can miss out on what God is doing when bad things happen because we assume that God's so good, God's so holy, that this evil stuff just isn't in his boathouse. I'm on my own here. And it's just true enough to trip us up because God is good and right and perfect. He is perfectly holy. Sin is antithetical to his nature. But God has, has looked at our miserable estate and decided to roll up his sleeves and respond to the evil in this world and just as, just as another point of course he responds to human evil, of course he plans around human evil when he works, because uh, this trips some people up, some people are like well why, why is God can, can, we, we worry about whether or not God can work good from evil, we, we get caught up on that And I'll talk more about that in a little bit, but evil's people and situations can be used by God. They have been, they will be. God acts in an evil world and all the moving pieces on the board feature evil to some extent. God could upend that board, uh, flip the table over and call it a day, but he hasn't we kind of bled into the third point here. Because God, God is working in response to and in the midst of evil. Um, and is and doing that. He's stooping down into the muck we've made. But he does it to work for the good of his people, the people who are claimed by him, called according to his purposes. This third point's probably a little easier to argue than the others. Um, or at least it could be. Because you could just say, hey, look, baby Moses gets to go home. His family's happy. God works for the good of his people. The end. Um, not only works if you stop really quickly and then leave before anybody asks questions because if you scratch the surface of, of that line of reasoning, you have to ask, well, what about all the families whose children didn't come back for the river? Were they were God's people? Where Where's their good? Where was God working for their good? Because... I can say that. I can say God is working to the good of his people, but what do I mean by good and what do I mean by his people? Because if good is what we would prefer, if good is our happiness as we understand it, and if and if his people is is just everybody, well then both this, this text and our own personal life experiences can raise some insurmountable objections to this point. This point, in fact, sounds a lot like um, that, that shopworn phrase you've probably heard, everything happens for a reason. Um, or, or just the idea that no matter how terrible something is, somehow God's going to take that and use it for some sort of visible earthly good. Um, and it might feel like I kind of said that in the last point. Maybe I kind of edged up to it, or maybe it feels like outright said it. If, if so, I didn't mean to. Um, God does work in response to evil. And, and, and when, when, that, when we approach up to that idea, well, maybe everything happens for a reason. Maybe it was God's will that this terrible thing happened. You, you can get into some, some philosophical weeds pretty quickly, but, but just experientially, what I see happens when, when that gets said is that it kind of becomes, okay, how's God going to spin this one? you know hows hows the the christian pr department going to say oh but you see all that rain god's going to make a big old rainbow with it and it's going to be nice if god is there if he is working we wonder where the good is it it can rob us of our, our need to mourn tragedy to recognize evil as evil um, when we say, oh, it's okay, it's for the good, it'll all wash out in the end. Um, and we don't see that happening in Scripture. We see people lamenting evil. We see people uh, crying out to God to do something about evil. It's, it's, it's kind of easy to say, oh, well, th- those people are whiners, you know. Why God? Why did this terrible thing happen to me? Why do I only have three f- uh, Ferraris instead of four? I feel like a peasant. Um, but... But in, in, in most of the things I've seen and most of the people I've talked to, it's, it's not things like that. It's, it's why cancer? It's why stillbirth? Um, they're heavy whys. They're not, they're not entitlements. They're, they're, they're questions wrenched from the very deepest parts of our hearts. Why God? Where is the good you are working for? Where was the good news for everybody except the family of that one baby? And, and remember that, that, that point that when, when we're feeling spiritually shortchanged by God, there's a very good chance we're just looking in the wrong way or at the wrong person or at the wrong thing. We can miss God's acting in the normal and everyday when we, we just focus, um, when we're looking for a narrator. Um, and at the same hand, we can miss God's work for the good of his people when we focus on our immediate circumstances rather than our ultimate ones. We can miss the mountain for the molehill, if you will. Especially when we, when we define good on our own terms. Because in just this passage, stopping here at verse 10, you'd be right, there is no major good for the rest of God's people because their immediate circumstances haven't changed an iota. Nothing's gotten better um, from the beginning of this chapter. A baby was born and survived. But rather than asking, well, why didn't God save all of them? Why didn't he just save more of them? Might we be better off asking, well, why did God save this one? What if this baby was the good news the people of Israel had been waiting for? What if on this day God, though through the apparatus of the normal and everyday, and in the midst of great evil, had just saved Israel's Savior? The book of Exodus is, is telling us about this kid for a reason. God has set him aside. He saved him. Why? Born in for the first few years, raised as a Hebrew, as a Levite, then raised as an Egyptian. Who will this kid be? What will he become? And the hard part is that the people of Israel will not know for 80 years. Moses himself won't know. People will, will live and die in this story in, in, in our lives amidst real hardship. Never knowing that on that day, on the birth of that child, the sparing of that life, a ripple was started by God that would grow and grow until, as we'll see, it shakes the pillars of the ancient world. This baby will become a man who would perform signs and wonders, who would would share an intimacy with God not seen since Adam had walked with God in the Garden of Eden. A man who would, by God's grace, lead this people out of slavery and into the very presence of God himself. But on that day, unless you knew, just because of God who was, or of who God is, you wouldn't know it, you'd miss it. You wouldn't have any sense of what had just transpired, of how events had turned for the good of God's people. Now the details of what God is doing and how he's doing it on any given day are fuzzy. And I get that. But are the abilities and the character of the one who is working in question, I hope not, It's a beautiful song. woo <laughs> Playing me off the stage. <laughs> Brutal. Yeah, exactly. It could be worse. It very often feels like we're alone. I guess, I guess that's my point. D- distill it all down back to the beginning. When, when we look at the details of our lives... And, and we don't have a narrator telling us what's what. Persistent. <laughs> uh, when we look at the details of our lives, it can be very, the easiest thing in the world to say that we're on our own, to, to not see God, and, and to, to question whether he's there, and if he's there, if, he's, if he knows what he's doing. Where was God when? Dot, 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 question mark. That's the question. That's the question that our our culture, that our unbelieving friends ask us. When, When we tell them, we believe, this changed my life, this is the most significant thing in the world, the question becomes, not always, but very often, where was God when, dot, 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 question mark. When great evils seem to go unanswered, when we're left in the silence of our own thoughts, even for 15 minutes, the world asks us, we ask ourselves, where was God? Where was God when the children of Israel were in slavery? Where was God when their children were being placed in the Nile? And and the answer is, he was among the reeds. He was there in the mud. Unnarrated, unobserved, waiting in a river that was being deified as a god in his rightful place. Uh, God was wading through the, what was functionally the altar where the children of his people were being sacrificed so that he could meet us where we could not and would not meet him. God was among the reeds themselves in the weeds in the thick of it saving the child who would in turn save his people. The child who would lead them to the land God had promised them who would receive God's law and share it with God's people and eventually with the world so that the world would be convicted by the enormity of its sin and recognize that it needed rescue. Where was God when we needed him? Well, he wasn't on the throne in heaven. He was among the reeds. He was given the name Jesus. He was born in a stable and laid in the hay. And unless you were there with the shepherds, unless you had heard the angels sing for 30 years, you wouldn't know that God had stepped into our world, had become a man, and that God was now with us in every possible sense of the word. Where was God? He was fighting for us. He was living among us. He was pointing the way to freedom. He was, he was shattering Satan's chains on one man in Gerasene, in Samaria. He was breaking all social conventions to reach out to a woman that the world had no use for. In Bethany, he broke the hold of death on Lazarus. In Jerusalem, he stood in the temple and and physically ejected racists and opportunists who stood between people who wanted to worship God and the presence of God. That's where God was. He was living his life for us. <laughs> the, the solution to the problem of evil, it's this philosophical conundrum for, for, for people who want to argue for a good God. And, and, and books have been filled with the question to it, and I'm convinced that the answer to the problem of evil isn't some, some ingenious argument that successfully defines terms in an original enough way to where you can squeak by on some technicality of logic. God knows our pains, our heartaches, and our trials, and and he knows that we feel alone, and it, it breaks his heart more than it ever does ours. And seeing this, God came down among the reeds. He suffered with us. He suffered for us. When we ask where God was, we have to remember God was on our cross. He was on mine. He was on yours. He was bearing our judgment, the The judgment for our share of the evil we've all spilled into this world, (coughs) which is already overflowing with it. As a living man, the most normal and everyday thing possible, he responded to evil in the most complete and final of ways by defeating it through his death on the cross. And that formed a ripple that is expanding ever outward until one day it will shake down the very pillars of creation itself what does this mean? Well, for, for believers, I think one of the first things we should ask ourselves is, if, if, if this troubles us, if we're asking God, why haven't you saved this person I care about? If, if, where, where were you when my friend needed the Holy Spirit to help them believe? Rather than asking God, why haven't you saved everyone? Why haven't you saved more people? Maybe we should look in the mirror and ask ourselves, God, why have you saved this one? What is your purpose for me? What would you have me do. Seeing this, we can be confident that knowing that, that God, high and holy uh, above us, God, is also closer than we suspect. As, as believers, we can rest in the certainty that our God has spared no expensive effort and love and faithfulness to chase after us and restore us to a state of completeness. And to our unbelieving friends, to, to our people who aren't sold on this, we can commend this good news, this gospel. Because it's, it's not a moral life we're recommending, although that'll probably happen. Um, it's not a set of theological principles we are, we're advancing, although those are there. It's, it's not even strictly speaking, the Bible that we are we're recommending to them, it's, it's a person. It's Jesus. We're saying, this is the God we worship. This is the God we serve because it's a God who has served us and loved us. He is. The one, the one we worship is worthy of our trust, of our love, our devotion, and every, every praise and honor our hearts can conceive of and our lips can utter. God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Dear God, we come before you humbled at how you've humbled yourself in our surface. How without our knowing, how without our seeing, You have been serving us since time out of mind, working to our benefit, working to our reconciliation with you. And we know that you're mindful of the heartaches we've suffered and the difficulties we face. And you've delivered us from some and you haven't from others. And as we wait on the perfect and final rest you've promised us in Christ, God, we pray for faith, we pray for patience, we pray that you will renew the hope that you placed in us when we believed, and we pray that we will receive it, confident in the knowledge of who you are and what you've done, so sure of your worth and your value and your greatness. But we can commend you to those we know who are hurting and who haven't received this message God, compel our hearts to value Jesus to see in what he has done and who he is the summation of our hopes for a better world, for a better life, for an answer to the evil that plagues us God, thank you. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.